0: The Y Curve, with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Where do we get our energy? Increasingly from the wind, from waves, from hot rocks, from what's renewable. That's what you'd think, but the UK government now says there will be annual contracts to drill for oil and gas in the North Sea, and globally we're using more fossil fuels than ever before. The commitments to net zero are being watered down. It's too difficult and burdensome, we're told, to move
1: so fast
0: against carbon emissions. So is it simply realism? Should the UK use the resources it still has in a costly energy market? Or
1: is it important to set hard and inconvenient targets to save our future?
0: The Why Curve I feel like we have been sold a pup by the prime minister over out of all of this. So, with, so the things that he said that you know by mm. by offering more licenses, mm. I don't know how long it takes. This is North Sea oil, yeah, yeah, and, and gas. And gas. Mm. The time it takes from from issuing a new license to actually getting it deployed. How I mean, you know, how many years is it's that going to take, take? At a time when we are trying to reduce our reliance on these fossil fuels,
1: and the evidence that we actually get any specific benefit from the North Sea is a well, bit yeah. marginal.
0: Exactly. Do we do we benefit from it? It's an international price, obviously, yeah, that's paid. Yeah. And and also energy security was the other reason he gave. And, you know, um, I, I understand it. We're getting a lot of stuff from Norway. Doesn't you know.
1: sound like it, it's going to work either. But but But, you know, in terms of his general position that, you know, we can't go as fast towards net zero as perhaps we wanted to because the cost for individual families and people trying to afford to run cars or, or, or their heating is rather he- heavy. And I mean, mm. in that sense, I think he may have an appeal to the voters on this
0: one. Yeah, so a, a misinformed voter. maybe. Well, maybe because I mean, maybe. is it really going to bring the prices down? So there's a lot to talk about anyway. Uh, yeah.
1: let's-, let's bring in Gavin Bridge, who's Professor of Economic Geography at Durham University and Fellow of the Durham
0: Energy Institute. So Gavin, I mean, do we actually need to do this? Do we actually need to go and get more oil domestically? Uh, Because, I mean, we haven't been self-sufficient with oil for a long time. And in any case... It, irrespective of where that oil comes from, we're only ever going to be a small percentage of the total. And it's an international marketplace. So is getting, you know, more North Sea oil actually going to make any difference, to, for example, to the price we pay or to energy security?
2: So there's, a, uh, there's many elements to your question there. Uh, actually, so- all the questions <laughs> for the half-hour programme I've just done in the first <laughs> question. Actually. I'm just
1: going to say nothing from now.
2: <laughs> so maybe what we could do, we could unpack those bit by bit. Um, so uh, the relationship between the offshore uh, from where the UK extracts oil and the onshore where the UK consumes oil is a really interesting question, because I think in most people's minds, we will know we've got North Sea oil. We've had North Sea oil from the mid 1970s. And the reasonable assumption would be that we produce oil offshore, we consume it onshore. And What's actually quite surprising to most people is that most of the oil that is produced in the North Sea on the UK continental shelf is exported. 80% of that oil is exported. So most of it doesn't touch the sides of the UK, it goes straight into international markets. Now, the UK does consume plenty of oil, um, it's down uh, from its its peak in the 1970s, uh, down substantially from that peak, but it's still a, a major consumer of, of oil and oil products, principally for transport, um, but most of that um, is based on imports. Uh, whether that is so, so just,
1: just to clarify yeah. that, Gavin, what you're saying is the oil that we get from the North Sea isn't suitable or it has to be processed elsewhere. What, yeah, why yeah, is it not yeah, used straight yeah. away? Yeah, so,
2: so, so that kind of mismatch, if you like, these two systems that, that barely, barely meet or meet in only a very limited way, requires some explanation. And the short answer is there are several factors. Uh, so let me try and explain them. A, a key element here is a little bit of history in that most of the refineries in the UK were set up in a period before North Sea oil. So most of those refineries, they've obviously been expanded and and updated over time, but they date from the 1950s and the 1960s, when the UK saw a really significant increase in demand for fuels. This was the beginning of the jet age. Most people beginning to own cars, drive around, motorways being built. So basically, demand for petroleum boomed. And in that period, refineries were set up that were based on importing crude from elsewhere. But the offshore crude in the North Sea is of a particular quality. It's often referred to as being premium crudes. In other words, it can command a price premium in international markets. And it also, most of it, is produced um, uh, in a way that means it's readily put on a ship. And if you put a crude on a ship, it's easily transported. It can go into international markets to wherever the price is best. And um, because of that, most of the crude from the North Sea has ended up being sold directly in international markets. Some of them... So the the, the
0: refineries that we had then, sorry, just so I understand, the refineries that we had then were for the wrong type of oil. We we couldn't refine and then export or refine and then use because the refineries were set up largely for imports.
2: Yeah, so, so what you've got is you've got... Um, a type of crude offshore that, if you like, faces international markets. It can get a premium on international markets. And then you've got refineries in the UK that are trying to meet UK demand. And a lot of UK demand is for what, what's called the middle distillates. So that would be things like diesel, for example. And to produce diesel, you need a blend of different crudes. And broadly speaking, the sort of crudes you need for that are not really produced um, offshore.
1: OK, so, so just again, just to clarify and walk us through, because this is a complicated area. Yeah. When it goes into the international markets, Nonetheless, there is, I guess, a tax benefit. The benefit to the UK of getting North Sea oil is that the government gets a take along the way, so it does earn something for the UK economy.
2: So it'll earn something in terms of a tax take, yes, um, and there will be a contribution to the balance of payments. Um, It's basically exporting a fuel uh, which will be sold in dollars, and that will contribute to the overall balance of payments. Right, but
0: net we're now importing i mean there was a time wasn't there when we were actually exporting more than we were using but that's those days are long gone so now it's a it's a, a negative balance of payment because we're
2: importing more than we're exporting so we do we are a net importer overall that is right
1: okay so we we've, we've, we've got to the stage where we can say about this that getting it out of the ground in the north sea does have a benefit for the uk economy but it would be wrong to say that we actually use what's coming out of there in any direct sense
0: and 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 should we be you know be targeting being a, a net exporter again or is that just a pipe dream if you'll excuse the pun
2: I I think those those prospects are really limited by the nature of the North Sea as a basin it's widely regarded as a mature and declining those are the two words mature and declining basin in the sense that uh, the lar- really large reserves are uh, in the in the uh, in the basin's history they're in the rear view mirror um mm. and And that the prospects of uh, a sustained increase in production that would shift the dial in terms of treasury take and balance of payments, uh, that's very unlikely to happen.
0: So it's going to be too expensive, in other words, if we sold on the international markets, the cost of extracting. Because I'm I'm looking at some figures from, this is from a while ago, from 2015. The cost of producing one barrel of oil in the UK was 52.50. Dollars. Dollars compared to 8.50 in Q8, 9.90 in Saudi Arabia. Now you're saying we're we're sort of like a slightly more premium product, but a chunk of that presumably is just the fact that, you know, it it just jumps out of the ground in Saudi Arabia and we're having to work hard to extract it.
2: Yeah, so what you're looking at there would be a comparison of of production costs. Mm. And, And the UK has a mature and declining base and has compared certainly to the Middle East significantly higher production costs. It's not so, when, so, in that,
0: so, if we offered
1: more licenses, who'd want them? Well, exactly, because companies, big companies, are not going to grab it if the upstream costs are as high as they are.
2: Yeah, so we've been doing some work, um, uh, some research funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. And through that work, we've been looking at who is acquiring licenses in the North Sea. And it's very clear there's a sort of transition in ownership in the offshore in the last 20 years. So basically, since the peak of production, which for oil was 1999 for gas, 2000. And in the last 20, 23 years or so, there's been a significant shift. Um, Some of the the companies that have been synonymous with the, the North Sea for for much of its its, its period. Companies like Chevron and Exxon, uh, BP, Shell, uh, some of those companies have exited. Um, Chevron and Exxon would be examples of that. Others like Shell and BP have really reprofiled their production. They've sold off a bunch of assets, in other words. And in their place, um, a range of other companies have come into the basin uh, some of the it's quite an interesting mix. Um, some of those are not household names. Uh, they tend to be focused on oil and gas production rather than being integrated companies with downstream refining arms. So a company like Harbour Energy, for example, or Neo. Some of them are backed by private equity, um, and others are state-owned firms. Uh, not UK state-owned firms, but state-owned firms from outside the UK. Uh, But it's
1: still worth their while. They're clearly making an economic judgment. You think with these licences, the annual licences, there will be a take-up?
2: The King's Speech announcement for annual licensing rounds, the the North Sea Transitional Authority has already the capacity to issue licences. It it can do that at a timing that it, it chooses, so the the upping the ante, if you like, to push this to an annual round is primarily, I think, a, a, a domestic political objective in terms of party politics ahead of a general election.
1: It's meaningless, really, in terms of actual production and cost and everything else.
0: It's it's spin, isn't it? Is what you're saying? It's it's something that exists already. The it's...
1: classic political thing of re-announcing what's already there.
2: Well, the pro the process for issuing licences to the UK continental self already exists. What's being proposed here is annualizing that process, a yearly process. Um, in practice, the last round, um, the the thirty third licensing round, um, has taken over a year uh, from the opening of that round to licences being issued. So, in practice, it's becoming it's an it takes an it takes a year to see this process through. So, actually, the concrete consequence. Of annualizing it in terms of an increase in uptake, I think that's really unlikely to. Occur. And then
0: once they, I'm curious about those companies which are not the you know the household names, uh, as you say, some foreign state enterprises who are buying up these licences. If they're just not commercially viable for the, for the big players, how are they hoping to make some money out of it?
2: Some of the companies that are coming in and buying up those licences have um, they, they uh, they're focused on cutting costs, uh, so they will look to do that often by outsourcing parts of the production process to some of the supply chain companies in the supply chain. Uh, Some of them are smaller uh, in terms of their overall production profile. And that means that they don't need to seek Large reserves that um, the really big companies need for replacement. So there's a bit of a sort of an interesting ecology, if you like, between large firms that need large reserves to replace what they produce every year, and then smaller firms that don't, if you like, have to uh, um, generate uh, the reserves replacement at the same level, who can come into a basin and they find value uh, for their shareholders um, in the uh, smaller reserves that are left.
0: Right. So we're talking about small amounts of energy being produced then in terms of the, uh, the, the total supply in the world. This is mm. just a, a mere blip. And so we haven't really mentioned, we mentioned
1: the gas element. You mentioned the gas briefly there. Mm. You said the oil isn't really the kind that we couldn't immediately use here. What about the gas? Is that, a, is that an opening?
2: Yeah, so so the gas is is the gas uh, production in the North Sea is physically connected to the UK. It comes into the UK and uh, um, uh, supplies a little under half of uh, domestic consumption, and the balance, the difference, is made up with imports. Uh, those imports, some of them come by pipeline, principally from Norway. Um, increasingly, they're coming in the form of liquefied natural gas, um, gas that's turned into a liquid by chilling it. And that's coming in from the US, uh, from Norway, and from further afield, too, from Qatar. Uh, so gas offshore is physically connected and consumed in the UK. Um, there is actually quite a bit of gas export. Uh, there are some interconnectors uh, with Europe. And in the last year, which saw an increase of gas demand in Europe, particularly because of the cutoff of Russian supplies, the UK has been acting. As a kind of a bridgehead, importing LNG and then exporting that gas through the pipelines into Europe.
0: So, and there's no price advantage. Again, it would just be the, I mean, the fact that it comes from the North Sea and it comes in and we use it. Uh, is there a price advantage to to UK consumers, or again, is it you know we're paying an international market price? So,
2: so this is a key point. So the you know the, the, the proposition that if we uh, issue more licenses, and we drill for more oil and gas, that that will have a consequence for the consumer, that it would deliver lower prices. Um, mm. That isn't the case. Um, we have been producing oil and gas in the offshore uh, during a period of high international oil prices, and it hasn't insulated the UK from those high prices, as we're all, we're all aware. And the reason for that is that even though we might produce it domestically, produce the gas from UK waters, that gas is bought and sold at international market prices. We're not insulated from that. Um, so that the best way of addressing um, uh, questions of affordability for UK consumers, is to move away from a reliance on gas, whether that gas is imported through pipelines or LNG or whether it's produced domestically. The, 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 the most effective way of reducing exposure to volatile prices is to reduce consumption of fossil fuels. So right. improve, well, I mean, that, improve energy efficiency and shift to renewables. I mean, that kind of
1: brings us sorry to the point where we're saying, okay, we can see some... Economic advantage to the continued uh, prospecting for oil and gas—nothing major, but it's in, ga- in nothing, terms of perhaps major. Tax,
2: tax. I think that's key here. We're talking—we right. get, we get a
0: bit of extra tax. Is all but is what we get haven't into. mentioned at all. Not,
2: we, we might not yeah. get a little extra tax. Ah, because, why not? Well, because of the way the uh, the way the tax uh, system works for offshore, quite a lot of the upfront costs, the decommissioning costs, can be written off against that tax so in the last few years the kind of tax take has actually been negative in relation to the offshore
1: even with the windfall tax that was put in the windfall, place
2: the windfall tax has shifted that a little bit um uh, but what the windfall tax has effectively done to the the tax rate in the uk offshore has just has has put it up to a level where it is still rel- uh, still relatively attractive by international by international terms. So it's put it up from around 40% up to around 60, 68, 70%, something like that as a total tax take, which is equivalent to many other oil and gas basins around the world. And important to say, there are really significant exemptions that are written into the windfall tax energy profits levy Um, that mean that for many companies that that additional tax of the windfall is avoided.
1: What we haven't mentioned anywhere along the way is the balance of what we've said is, let's say, marginal financial advantage against the huge cost in climate terms of continuing to use and produce fossil fuels. And that's that's a much harder thing to balance, isn't
2: it? I'm really glad you brought that up because that really is along with the, the question of affordability and exposure to volatile prices linked to oil and gas, that that climate consideration is, is something that needs to be front and centre here. Um, and the, again, the Climate Change Committee here has been absolutely crystal clear on that. Um, they've explicitly said that um, uh, the expan- in, in their report on net zero in June this year, explicitly said that the expansion of fossil fuels is not in line with a net zero scenario. Um, this is map, map, maps well onto um, international scientific evidence in this space that suggests that 60% of um, oil and gas reserves that are already known need to stay in the ground to stand um, any chance of, of delivering a 1.5 degree C, um, staying within a 1.5 degree C rise in temperature. And um, a report, the net zero scenario from the International Energy Agency, um, which made it clear that no new oil and gas fields are needed uh, in the context of a net zero scenario.
1: But that's a key point, is that no new, no new. So I'm out.
2: looking
0: at an IEA report, they're forecasting that right up to 2050, the world is going to stick at using around 100 million barrels a day. So we'll see a fall in advanced economies, but that's going to be basically completely replaced by increased demand from, from other emerging markets. So that doesn't sound like a net zero situation at all. That sounds like we're just going to carry on where we are right now.
2: Well, IEA is forecasting a peak, global peak in demand by twenty thirty now. So the global peak in demand is is within sight. But a key mm. point is, is that it's the speed of the downslope. So peaking alone is not enough. Um to stay any chance within a 1.5 degree C, there has to be a really significant right uh, markdown in the consumption. Um, of of fossil fuels, and it's increasingly clear that supply side policies are going to be part of that. And this is something that the climate change committee in the UK context has made clear. Um, they uh, support uh, for. Um, uh, restrictions on some restrictions on supply in the interests of achieving uh, climate targets.
1: So that would be legal rules, if you like, on on what on what supply can be. They would be effectively a reduced how much you can get out of the ground kind of thing.
2: Well, it, what it would be would be first of all would be not issuing new licences for oil and gas. Um, And to some extent, the the licensing question is, is a bit of a red herring, and I can explain this by saying that a lot of the North Sea, a lot of the UK continental shelf is already licensed. So you, you may have heard of the, the recent decision, the Rosebank decision. Rosebank is
1: Yeah, there was a a key, a key new thing that was licensed in with great controversy. Well, not,
2: to no, no, this is a, sorry, sorry to correct you, but yeah. but it is, no, it, is, it is important. Happens all so, the time.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, I get used to it. So me. so
2: r- r- the decision on Rosebank was a decision by the NSTA, the North Sea Transition Authority, what used to be called the Oil and Gas Authority, the regulator. And the decision was not a licensing decision. And the reason I'm being pedantic about mm. this is that licensing is separate to the approval process or what's called a consenting process. And the reason that's significant is that a lot of the North Sea is already licensed. So mm. Rosebank was licensed back in the early 2000s, and the decision in, in earlier this year was an approval by the NSTA. So what that, what that, that distinction is pointing us to is that A key space here in terms of how much more oil and gas will be produced in the North Sea is not about licensing. It's about the approval process of areas that are already licensed.
0: Right. But we, but we are a bit player in this, though, aren't we? I mean, we are obviously, we're not producing as much. I think I saw somewhere that we've got, what, 800,000 barrels a day. It's a lot in the UK. Uh, it was over a million just before the the pandemic, but in the 80s and 90s, it was 2 million. But I think, you know, somewhere around 90 million barrels a day are produced globally. So we're, so we're a small part of that, aren't we? And if we're looking at how you constrain supply... I mean, surely it's not us that's going to be the uh, the the risk. It's going to be uh, obviously the Middle East, but also the US, where shale oil uh, is you know produced almost with within weeks. The moment the price comes down, shale oil production in the US starts to. Sorry, the moment the price goes up, shale yeah. oil production in the US starts to jump in because uh, just about everyone's figured out they can make some money out of it.
2: Yeah, this this question about you know what is the the UK's role in this is um is a really really interesting one, an important one. So there's some things we can mm. say. So we're not, we, we are a small player in terms of the overall picture, as you've pointed out, in terms of production and in terms of consumption, too. Um, but if you look on a European scale, then we're the second largest oil producer in the European space um, after Norway. The UK's role in the oil and gas sector w- way outstrips um, the significance of its offshore production in terms of London's role as a centre for raising oil and gas finance globally, um, as a a place for trading oil and gas. um, The trading floors, for example, um, in London, Uh, are of global significance, and in terms of the companies that are headquartered here, uh, both the household names, BP and Shell, but also companies in the supply chain uh, that see much of their value from uh, investing in oil and gas production and services elsewhere in the world. So the UK has kind of an, an outsized role in the oil and gas sector compared to its role in global production something else that I think is really important here and that goes to the question um about uh international signalling or you might talk about it in terms of international leadership and i think in, in the run up to the um uh the cop meetings the conference of the parties in in um in dubai uh, in yeah dubai and the uae uh in november this isn't is that important. ironic
1: in itself but we'll put that yeah. in parentheses but, yeah.
2: <laughs> so and, and this is you know what what capacity does a country like the uk have for leverage on global climate um and it can make some claims, as as our leading politicians do, to you know climate leadership, the Climate Change Act, the rapid fall in emissions over time. Mm. Those are all significant things that do give the UK some leverage. But then, but when you make announcements
0: we... like we had in the King's Speech, yeah. for very little yeah. benefit, we're saying in terms of finance. It sends the wrong signal, doesn't it? It makes it it well, it makes it difficult to argue that we're a world leader in terms of moving towards
2: uh, net zero. And, that, well, and that's, we, the point, we, that, that's the point I'm, I'm making here. Mm. The claims to leadership, which can be based on you know the, the, the historic record in this space, are potentially being squandered by continuing to develop oil and gas reserves in the North Sea. Yeah, yeah, but
1: then you've got the, the, the corollary to that, which I can kind of hear people screaming at their um, at their portable devices that's playing this, is actually, it may be a question of global leadership and us waving the flag and everything else, but it comes down to how much people can afford to pay their heating bills here, how much people can afford to run a car well, whether no their difference. old car is still functionable, uh, you know, in, in, in a and new, less area. In, international market, it, it, makes
0: no, it makes no difference. Well, it's it's exactly. It's, a, it's like if you run right. a pork pie factory in Bolton, you're not, you're not going to get cheaper pork pies in Bolton. They're going to sell pork pies for the same yeah, price and, and, all the, over and the
1: burden is, is held in the UK people which in the end Gavin is what the politicians is who the politicians are responsible
2: to I think the key thing there is that if you are concerned about affordability which we should be the best solution to dealing with exposure to volatile and particularly high prices is to move away from a reliance on oil and gas mm. and, and the way to do that is not only in the offshore it's about um uh concerted um Uh, rapid and ambitious efforts to reduce dependence on fossil fuels onshore Uh, so it's the stuff of energy efficiency it's the stuff of more rapid moves uh, away from car dependence Um, it's going to involve not only a focus on the offshore but onshore too
0: but it's gradual, isn't it? And, and gigs, they say, that does take time, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's another thing in the short term. And part of the problem I think we hit was that we didn't have the reserves, did we, that other countries had? So Centrica, when they privatised gas, they basically shortly afterwards closed the gas storage that we had in the North Sea. I mean, they, uh, what, they had a 30 square kilometre reservoir that could hold 6 billion cubic feet of gas. And it was closed in 2017 because it was too expensive to maintain without government support. And now I think the government is talking about maybe helping them a little bit and they're, they're reopening it, but like 2% of the original gas storage and they're worried that the government's not going to keep their word on it. So isn't yeah. that, that balancing out of uh, demand and supply with, with greater storage, that would be a more sensible move in the short term, wouldn't it, rather than opening up new gas yeah. Energy security was. I
2: yeah. think the storage question is unfortunately not a short-term issue. And the, the sort of thing you're proposing there of a large storage facility is not something that can... Be- be brought into production very quickly and this, this question of mm. the role of physical storage has been looked at quite extensively and the the way the uk has basically handled its gas security over time has been through diversification of supply um, particularly through uh, uh, liquefied natural gas the construction of terminals to receive liquefied gas in southwest wales um, in on the thames estuary um, and uh, this physical diversification um, has given the UK a, a reasonable degree of um, uh, assurance around physical supplies, but it hasn't insulated the UK from price volatility. So we've had physical security, mm-hmm. but not price security. And the, the the key to delivering price security is remove is removing your reliance um, on a volatile commodity. Um, which in this case is gas.
1: But, but yeah, people it's, will say, well, wind is is volatile in the sense when the wind doesn't blow, the turbines don't move, and we don't get the supplies of energy we need. A lot of these renewable resources are good, but they're not reliable—at least not yet.
2: That's the well. They're, they're reliable um, in terms of uh, the, the the technology involved. It's the intermittency uh, because of the their uh, the, the reliance on physical variables, as you point out, the wind and the sun. So solutions to that are about networking your renewables. Um, so uh, the UK now has a submarine cable connecting the UK to hydropower from Norway that comes on shore in Northumberland, uh, for example, um, and the connectivity of transmission lines um, uh, to to Europe, particularly to France. Mm.
0: Uh, through the channel tunnel, I understand actually. They're using the, well, the part the, of the channel tunnel to build new new cables.
2: But the con what you've got there is a connectivity, a transmission system connectivity that mm. allows you to balance off intermittency in different parts of the of the, the physical environment. Um that together with forms of energy storage, whether it's battery storage or other forms of energy storage, electricity storage, um uh give you uh uh, is is the way that you shift your electricity supply towards renewables.
1: So what you're saying is that the ambitious target of net zero, the idea of moving much faster towards that, which effectively Rishi Sunak has kind of dumped now, uh, and, and for example, with cars, you know, that the requirement for cars to be electric in a much earlier point that you're saying that, that his claim that that is pretty much undoable without major sacrifices by the voting public in terms of reliability of energy source and cost and the rest of it. You're saying you got that wrong is right? that actually yeah. we could go ahead.
0: So the speed of transition. Yeah. So let's say I mean because I mean I think Rishi Trunac's trying to say well we do want to get there but it's got to be the speed of it all was too yeah. fast and, we've got, and to, we've got to slow down. It's too painful for the people basically voting for him. Yeah Yeah.
2: yeah but what, what's interesting there is if you actually ask people what do they want if you look at the, the, the polling consistently shows strong support for action on climate. That there is a recognition that um, reliance on fossil fuels subjects the UK uh, to um, volatile prices, and that the most effective way of addressing that is to move more rapidly away from um, that 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 dependence, that reliance.
0: Right. So, in summary, what we're saying for so what Rishi Sunak has given us the two main reasons why he wanted to open up uh, new fields in the North Sea. Uh, one was for energy security, and I think you said you know. A a lot of it's coming from Norway. We get yeah. stuff from the United States as well. Pretty comprehensively, it's, that's it, not it, true. It's, it's part exactly. We're part of an international market, and we buy it where it's available from. So that doesn't apply. And then the other one is that yes, it's going to bring down costs, and it's not because it's a it's an international marketplace. So there's no. And I, I would have thought also. I mean, and plus the fact, as you're saying, it's it's expensive anyway. And uh,
1: renewables uh, can take it up, and, we're, and it's, it would it. be
0: cheaper to do renewables. And we're not going to get uh, any any tax benefits from from this either. So everything is promising there's no i mean it's none of it's true so
2: let's let's take each of those so if you if let's just take, <laughs> take the offshore right so when you like the, the assumption is if you offer licenses more frequently you will get a, a, an uptake of those licenses they'll be brought into production and there'll be additional supply i think at each step of those there's real real questions about that so you can offer licenses and there will be companies who uh, seek to acquire a license but whether they actually bring that license turn that license into new oil and gas. there's a lot that has to happen from being issued a license to bringing oil and gas into production.
0: Yeah. So what was sort of like, how many years normally would
2: that be? Well, so it, it varies. So the quickest is probably three to four years for a gas associated gas field. So that's in an area where there's already infrastructure, there's already production. And really what you're doing is you're just reaching a little bit further out. So three to four years. But if you're talking about a major oil field, that's probably going to be somewhere between five to 10 years. So if you, from issuing a license to actually seeing some production, that's going to be a significant time delay um, in that. So you're not going to see any result from this quickly. I think a second cause for kind of uh, scepticism around this um, is that uh, increasingly, uh, there, there are concerns about what are called stranded assets. Uh, so that if you uh, acquire an oil and gas reserve and you seek to develop it, that actually action on climate change will take some of that market away from you, and mm-hmm. you won't be able to sell that at the price you expected. And furthermore, that you won't get the loans; the bank um, facilities yeah. won't lend to you in the way. In other words. The commerciality and the ability to turn a geological reserve into a going concern that produces one again. So you've
0: just given all the reasons there why it's not going to happen. There's
2: going but, to be, but there's, but there's going to be also no the security
1: issue, which is, can we rely without that uh, on renewables? And your answer is basically yes, we can, without too much pain. So
2: uh, I would say renewables, yes. But, but more than that, right? It has to also be accompanied with things like energy efficiency and investments in, particularly when it comes to road transport, in a reducing car dependence. So that's things like public transport. It's about the Uh, Mm. underpinning investments that enable people to move around without being dependent on individual automobility. Well, you mean like a Um, high-speed rail network uh, up and
0: down the country, (laughs) that sort of thing.
2: I mean things that are much more mundane than that. That's cruel, that's cruel.
0: Gavin's in
1: Durham, it's very cruel to mention north-south. Well, it was never going to Durham anyway, was it?
2: (laughs) There are things that really matter to people's quality of life, uh, which is the ease and cost with which you can move around without being reliant on your own car. Um, and in uh, a relatively dense, uh, in, uh, densely populated uh, country like the UK, the opportunities for doing that are considerable. They haven't been the target of sustained uh, public and private investments over the last few decades. But there is significant um, potential there to reduce the demand uh, for um transport fuels in fact so so you're talking about better
0: public transport more better electric public transport
2: well i'm talking i'm I'm talking about reducing the reliance on individually owned cars so that could be things like car sharing it could be things like public transport bus networks tram networks train networks all those things that mean that people's making their own transport choices are less dependent on owning and using a car
0: so so are we then saying that out of out of everything that Rishi Sunak has has, has said the reasoning you know which we've been through a couple of times now and he seems to be wrong on it on all of them so is that because he doesn't understand it he's been he's been badly informed or it's just is politics. It, it, but if if it's politics it's a curious thing isn't it because as you said Gavin nobody's asking for this nobody is uh, saying oh, i'm going to vote for the for the for the government well, that, the is to, that is going to be the by- election
1: philosophy. Uh, yeah. came in, 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 you know, that, that, the Uxbridge by-election theoretically, uh, fell back to the Tories on. The ULEs, uh, you know, when people have votes to put that, certainly the Tories are banking on It's going a, to be an issue. It
2: was a, a remarkable leap from that and a very wafer thin majority, um, five hundred, I think it was, uh, to to sort of pivot on the rollback of net zero um, in, uh, environmental actions. So, so, so then it, you find it a bit curious. So, so the question about what, you know, why would you do this? Um, mm. uh, so I think the, the the political logic is to force. Labor into a position of being against something um, and to try and make a set of arguments. You've rehearsed them uh, admirably Mm -hmm. of what licensing might do. Um, I think on each of those grounds, affordability, energy security and climate, the link between offshore licensing um, and delivering those things is is very, very weak um, and can be argued against uh, quite clearly. So I think that what what's happening here is really a political logic around the next general election. Um, I think there are um, interests uh, who do want to see a continued um, oil and gas production. Um, uh, if you have assets in the North Sea, you're interested in seeing the life of those being extended where possible. If you've sunk costs, if you uh, you want to see for sure you know, your ability to. Uh, to return some revenue from those. If you are in the supply sector, looking at future contracts, you see this as a business opportunity. So, it's so not- you want to sweat.
0: So you want to sweat the assets you've got. Nobody is going to be wanting to establish, as you've said. No one is going to want to invest in new assets because it's too much of a liability.
2: So, so I think I think there's there's sort of two two sorts of risks here. Um, one is that one is the risk that offering more licenses uh, does it extend the life. Of the North Sea. And so you have continued production of a more and more marginal reserves. And what that means is that ultimately you end up with a, a, a disorderly transition. You end up with companies going bankrupt and having to bail out and the taxpayer needing to bail those companies out. So instead of an orderly transition and a rapid transition, what, you end, what you're doing is you're pushing uh, right to the margins, if you like, and you then the, then the inevitable reckoning that comes is rapid, sudden, uncontrolled, and produces additional costs that fall on the taxpayer. That's one risk. The, se- the second, the second risk is kind of the opportunity cost, if you can put it that way, which is that um, instead of sending a really clear signal that the UK is committed to the net zero targets um, and providing uh, assurance. To investors um, on the uh, uh, green and renewable side of the slate, what this does is create some uncertainty, and I think it's really significant. You know, over the last last few months, you've seen business leaders, um, Aviva Insurance Com- Insurance Company, you were part of the FTSE one hundred, coming out very strongly saying that um, a decision to offer new licenses in the North Sea is the wrong direction of travel, uh, creates uncertainty um, and sort of. Um, uh, makes it much more difficult for the UK to argue internationally. Uh, for the sort of action that is needed uh, to address both affordability and um, climate change.
0: It does feel, doesn't it, like you've got your, your foot on the accelerator as you approach a brick wall. Uh, not, not a good position to
1: be in. Gavin, <laughs> uh, I think we've buried the uh, Rishi Sunakwas case quite comprehensively. And
0: Keir Starmer, there's your answer for the next election. Ooh, <laughs> we are not a political, we're not a political pushing, I, but we I are. haven't
2: asked you about that, because I, I think the, the licensing, what, uh, what Labour's proposing, the licensing is interesting because it is a change in direction mm. from the last 50 years. Um, but as I've said, licensing is a red herring. That's a-
0: yeah. actually yeah. not where the
2: action is. It's kind of the very least you should be doing well, is they've saying got this- stop giving out new licensing.
0: We've run out of time today, but I know they yes. have this idea for a sort of like a consolidated energy authority. We should have asked you about that daily because well, that, that is interesting, but we'll talk about that some other time. We will, perhaps when
1: we get nearer to the election, which after all they are both aiming for with all these policies anyway. Yeah, Gavin, thank you for doing that. Good to talk.
0: You're very welcome. Thank you. Well, okay, yes. there wasn't a lot of sense in what Rishi said there, but maybe we'll get more from the Treasurer next mm. week from the, the Chancellor. Treasurer, not the Treasurer, treasurer the, the, Chancellor, the Chancellor, you bloody so Australian. I corrected I myself yeah. almost instantaneously. Anyway, Jeremy said, Hunt will yes. be
1: standing up and giving a sense of... What is to come uh, in terms of, for example, tax cuts? Because there's a lot of pressure on him for tax cuts ahead well, he's been of the election. he saying
0: he's not going to, hasn't he? Well, and then they had this crazy idea that for tax cuts they were going to look at uh, inheritance tax, hmm. which is sort of like something that affects the top what 0.1 Tory of the voters. Yeah, well, yeah, but not many of them <laughs> even. So um, yeah, yes. but what about uh, yeah, what about the uh, the tax thresholds which have yeah. frozen? I mean, there's a lot of illogic going on there yeah, as well, isn't yeah. there? So, but anyway, we'll, we'll see. And we're
1: just a year, of course, from hmm. a rather different financial statement that um, that tanked the economy, if you remember, yes. just a year and a bit. Yeah. A certain quasi Teng achieved a certain something, or didn't, uh, and then Jeremy Hunt came in and turned it all around. So a year on from that debacle, it will be interesting to see where he
0: he kind supposedly of got some headroom he said well, you know I, I we'll always find, find it curious isn't it when they say we've got headroom mm. because something has come in slightly less expensive than they thought or they've got more income coming in mm. they've still got massive debt mm. so they could actually use that headroom if they wanted to to reduce that debt or you know spend it on something that's going to win them votes and
1: well I think I know which way they'll jump but I'm a terrible old cynic yeah
0: but, yeah, but I don't think maybe they won't do it just now maybe they'll save mm. it for the big budget just before the, mm. uh, the election you know best to save up and then hit everyone at once
1: and meanwhile but well, they've got to reassure the international markets that we are not uh, going down the quasi-quartang route ever, ever again. Um, <laughs>
0: going down the quasi-quartang, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. so, is that where
1: Britain is going? Well, uh, there's a whole new adjective. There is, there is, and we won't go there. But next week we will be talking about this. In yep. fact, we will have the statement and we will dissect it.
0: Yeah, we will. Hot on the hot off the press next week on the on the Y curve. Thanks for listening today.
2: Bye. The Y curve.